Well, good morning. Good morning. Well, Julian, thanks for that, mate. Um, really simply, you kind of have summed up what we've been looking at over the last year. Um, well, I heard a, I heard a quote this week. Who's heard of a guy named Ray Dalio? Not many. Who's heard of Steve Jobs? All right, a bit more popular. All right, so Ray Dalio is described as the Steve Jobs of investing. So this is a man who's been incredibly successful um, throughout his life, but he's also a leadership guru, and he really is um, quite a brilliant man, very, very switched on, very influential. And um, I was listening to an interview with him this week, and he was talking about this idea of happiness, and he said "There's it's impossible to be unhappy if you have two things. And this isn't a man of, of faith, but he had these two ingredients for happiness. And Julian, you basically just summed them up for us. The first thing he said in regards to happiness was um, you need to have a purpose that is beyond you. You need to be involved in a purpose that is um, so much greater than yourself. Now, we know that that is the gospel. We know that that is our mandate here in life. We know that is what following God is about. Um, and so Ray Dalio's first point was that if we want to be people who are happy, who are deeply joyful, we need to be involved in a purpose that is greater than our own. Um, the second thing, ingredient that he, he had for happiness was that we need to be involved in deep community. We need to be around people who rely on us and we need to be able to rely on the people around us. And if we have those two things, then according to Ray Dalio, it is impossible to be unhappy. And we're going to look at today what it looks like um, to live out of an identity that is found completely and solely and utterly in God. Um, Julian, you summed up basically the series we've been looking at over the last sort of seven weeks. Who am I? Why am I here? And how should we live? And so we've been looking really closely at what it looks like for us to be found in the image of God. Um, and so we started by looking at this, um, in this, this beautiful passage, this beautiful chapter, Psalm 139. And we sat in this Psalm for a month. Um, and in this, in this Psalm, we looked at the idea that we are created with a purpose, that we weren't chanced into being, that we were, it was not luck that we're here. We were created with a purpose. We are purposed creations. God did not make a mistake. He did not overlook anything. Um, he, we didn't just go under the radar when we were, um, created. We are purposed creations. Everything about us has been purposed into being. And we're told in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And then the writer goes on to say, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. There's nothing about us that is by accident. Every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our being is made in the image of God. And he purposed, purposed us into creation. That is our foundation in this life. Um, we then looked at the idea that we are found hidden in Christ. Um, in Galatians 2 verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so as followers of Jesus, as people who um, are of the new birth, we know that we have been crucified, that we have been hidden in Christ, that it is no longer we who live. Our complete identity, everything that makes us up is God. When God looks at us, he sees himself in all his glory and all his purity. And we are found, our complete identity is found in him. The message of the cross literally comes to life in us when we are given the spirit of God. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at 2 Corinthians 5, and we've been looking at this idea last week, or two weeks ago especially, um, that we are now citizens of heaven. 
So our home is no longer this earth. Our home is now heaven. That is what we long for. That is what we desire. That is our new place of residence. And our job now in this life is to usher in the kingdom of heaven in the here and now. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5 and 6, it says, Now it is God who made us for this very purpose. And in this passage, it's saying to be clothed with heaven. And it goes on to say, And has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are here, we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We are people who live by faith and not by sight. And so these three questions that Julian raised, who am I, why am I here, and how should I live, are really the foundation of what we're going to look at today. If you've got your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to look at um, verses 11 to 21. So I'm going to read them for us, and then we're going to pray together. So in verse 11, it says this, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, we come before you today as people who desperately want to know you more. Father, we come before you and and I want to pray that we would be humbled by you. I want to pray that we would be deeply excited by you. I want to pray right now that you would just clear our minds. It can get so incredibly noisy. It can get tiring. We can get busy. And so, Father, we want to thank you that you're a God of peace. You meet us where we are at. You meet us in our chaos. You meet us in our anxiety. You meet us in our worries and our fears. And Father, we thank you that with a word, you calm us. And so Father, I want to pray that as a community, you would calm us now. I want to pray that your truth would be a revelation for us this morning. That as we look at your scriptures, at your word, we would know and we would experience the new life that is in them. Father, I want to pray that we would be a people who are humble. I want to pray that that humility would just lead to a really deep joy. 
And Father, I want to pray that we would be a people who are deeply happy because we know you and you know us. And so, Father, we just give you complete permission, not that us giving you permission does anything. But, Father, we want to give you complete permission to do what you want to do with us this morning. Father, we thank you that your spirit is with us. We thank you that your spirit is hovering over us, but we thank you that your spirit is inside us. We want to thank you that you are a God that is completely personal. You know each and every one of us. You knitted us together. And so, Father, you know what we need this morning. You know exactly where we are at. And we thank you, God, that you're a God that comes with answers. You're a God that comes with peace. And you're a God that comes with a light in the darkness. And in all of that, Father, in all your authority, in all your splendor, we thank you that you are personal and you know us. So, Father, we just pray that everything we do this morning would be about bringing you glory. In your name, amen. All right, well, as we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, um, the first line, after looking at what it looks like to be at home in heaven, to be clothed with literally with heaven, um, the first line we read is this, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Now, this idea of fear, having a reverent fear, is, is viewing God in his rightful place. We know that God is not this just this meek, nice, soft God. Um, we know that he is kind. We know that he is good. But we know that he is to be feared. We know that this God created the universe in all its splendor. We know that he created the, the ocean with all its, all its majesty and all its might, with all the, the, the power that is in that ocean. We know that we serve a God who loves us. We know that we serve a God that is kind. But we also know that his power is so incomparable. We also know that his majesty is so incomparable. In regards to this idea of fearing the Lord, there's a a writer called Christina Fox, and she's a writer and an author for the Gospel Coalition. And she wrote this in regards to what it means to fear God. I'm going to read it for us because it was really helpful for me this week. She says this. She says, John Piper describes the fear of God as if we were caught in a terrible storm while exploring an Arctic glacier. The storm is so strong that you fear you'll blow right over the side of the cliff. But then you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide and find shelter. And even though you are safe, you watch the storm go past with a kind of trembling pleasure. And John Piper writes, At first there was a fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life. But then you found refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Oh, the thrill of being here in the centre of that awful power of God and yet protected by God himself. And Christina Fox goes on to write, to fear the Lord is to be like Moses and remove our shoes because we are standing on holy ground. It is to be like the woman at the well who came face to face with the one who knew her so well. 
She encountered Grace and left Wonderstruck, running into the village to tell everyone. He told me everything I ever did. It is to be like the disciples who feared for their lives in the midst of a terrible storm at sea. But after seeing Jesus calm the storm with just his words, they stood in awe. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? As Mr. Beaver said of Aslan, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. This kind of fear is to grasp the wonder of the gospel that a holy and righteous God would take on flesh and enter this sin-stained world to rescue us from the clutches of death. It is to be utterly blown away that because of Jesus, we are children of God and we go freely before the throne of grace with complete confidence and without shame. It's to see his work in our lives and to be amazed at how he loves, provides and cares for us. So Paul in 2 Corinthians is saying, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. It's the overflow of this fear that we have of God. This deep and utter reverence, this deep and utter love for who God is in all his glory. And we know, and we've looked at this over the last few years, that when we are, when the vertical is right, when our relationship with God is right, there is this natural overflow that happens that the horizontal starts to become right. So when we allow God to have the strongest voice in our life, when we allow God to dictate who we are, to um, to influence in the deepest way possible, to excite us in his glory, all of a sudden we start to get welled up with this love for the people around us. When the horizontal is right, all of a sudden the natural overflow of what happens is that the, the horizontal starts to take care of itself. So for instance, I know that when I'm allowing God to speak into my life, when I'm allowing his love and his grace to be at the forefront of my life, all of a sudden my love for the people around me just grows and grows. My love for justice in this world completely changes. My love for the least, for the lost, for the broken in this world grows dramatically. Um, because that is the heart of God. And when our vertical is right, when we are allowing him to have the strongest voice in our lives, and we are people who are humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, you take my life and you do what you want with it. When we are people who worship as one of the, the uh, like the main things that we do in this life, the natural overflow of that is we start to deeply care about the things that God cares about. We take on his heart. He invests his heart into ours. And all of a sudden, we start to care about people in ways we never have before. Or we are reminded in ways that we once remembered, but maybe we had forgotten for too long. We start to have vision for each other. We start to care for each other. We start to love each other in the deepest ways possible. We start to care about ethics. We start to care about nature. We start to care about the world in which we live because we are people who care about the fact that heaven is coming to earth and we are people who are ushering in the kingdom of heaven in the here and now and that that has implications for every little detail in our lives, for every relationship, for every aspect of our work, for every aspect of how we love the families in which we live. There is an overflow of what it means to fear the Lord. And so since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. 
In verse 11, it goes on to say, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are taking, are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. In verse 13, Paul goes on to say, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you, for Christ's love compels us, But because we, we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. For Christ's love compels us. Now, the word compels, if you look it up in, uh, in a dictionary, it means to be forced. Now, we know that when, when it comes to religion and when it comes to church, so often um, we can find ourselves in, in rhythms and in postures where we have this obligation. Um, and it can be this religion, it can be tiring, it can be burdensome. And we can sit there and our response can be, I have to go to church. I have to give money. I have to love my neighbor. I have to read my word. I have to pray. And we can have these rhythms in our lives where we know that there are right things to do. We know that there are postures that we can take. We know that there are rhythms that we are, there are, that are healthy, but we don't deeply believe them because we're not deeply experiencing them. And so there's this aspect to this word compels where if we get this wrong, in the way Paul is writing it, if we understand this wrongly, then what happens is we have become people of faith who are just religious and just follow patterns and rhythms um, that don't bring glory to God and end up just crippling us and just putting all this weight on our lives. And every one of us knows what it is to experience that. If you look at this word in the Greek, this idea of compels, where Paul is saying, for Christ's love compels us, it's this, this understanding of to be held, um, to be held together by, by him, him guiding us and him holding us to a better way. So for instance, like River is our, our 18 month old. He's the best little kid. Like he's like, and I used to say this about, about Jasper, but Eli's now, um, uh, sorry, River's now our favorite. Um, he is, he is. And they're not here this morning, so it's all good. But, um, and Julian, like, e- parenting's the easiest, man. You sleep, it's all good. Like, you're good to go. Um, but River, he's 18 months old. He's a cheeky little kid. Um, but what he always does, he always loses his dummy and his rap. They're the two things that are the most sacred things in the world for him. Um, and, and he always wants them. He's always losing them. And so what he does is he'll come up to me and he'll come like walking up and he just puts his hands in the air. Um, and he just wants me to pick him up and walk around with him, give him a hug and let, let's search for these dummies and for these wraps. And he knows, like he might not be able to process this, but he knows that uh, there's a better view from up here. His dad's 18 foot tall. Like he knows there's a better view from up here. He's got a better chance of finding that dummy, finding that wrap um, by being held close to me and us going around and walking and trying to find them. This idea of being compelled, um, what Paul is getting at is that we are being compelled. We are being held into God. Like I hold River and I hold him real tight because he's my boy and I love him. Um, What Paul is getting at is that we are people who have experienced the fear of God. We've experienced his love and we are therefore compelled, held close, held tightly um, to share that message with the people around us, to overflow with his goodness. Um, 
it, following God can be a religion and it can be an obligation or it can be the most freeing and liberating thing and most natural thing that we do. Um, it can be the thing that becomes our greatest desire, and that is what God wants for us. And this idea of being held is where we have our root in the gospel, where we have the root of our lives, the core of our lives in who Jesus is um, above everything else. Because when the root, when our root of our lives, when our trust and our faith is completely found in him and not in what we do, but in who he is and what he has done for us, then all of a sudden there is this compelling nature of overflowing grace and mercy and his heart for the world in which we live. No longer does following God become this obligation. No longer does going to church become this obligation. It becomes the best thing that we do becomes the most, the source of our joy, the source of our happiness, the source of everything good in our lives comes when our root is found completely and solely in Him. This is the best news in the world because I'm very aware that so often there's many of us today that come to church and we are tired. We are burdened. It might be that like stuff in your family is just really difficult at the moment. Stuff with your parents, with your wife, with your husband, with your kids might just be really hard at the moment. There might be stuff at work that is just really burdensome. There might be relationship issues that you have. There might be um, a real lack of purpose that you have there. And I'm very aware that when we come together as a community, when we come together as a family, we are carrying things. And then a preacher will get up here and we'll talk about the fact that, yeah, we need to be people who overflow with joy. We need to be people who go into our world and, and are missionaries in our world and share the good news. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. But I want to remind us just really simply that the, the gospel is the best news in the world because it is not about what we do. It is about who God is and what he has done for us. And so the gospel is in the very core of what it is, is that he has died for us, that he has risen again. And all he asks us to do is just trust him, is to put our faith in him. And when we do that, all of a sudden he does all the work and overflows everything in good in him into us. We can't manipulate a heart for the world in which we live. We can't manipulate a heart for our neighbor. We might be able to force it and try in the short term, but in the long term, we can never, ever do that. And it will never be pure and it never will be joyful. The gospel in its essence is really simple. Hebrews 11, the heroes of all eternity are those people who are people of faith, who have trusted not in what is seen, but is in what is unseen. And so what this means is we are people, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. We are people who are compelled by grace. We are people who have been given the greatest gift in the world. We have experienced the greatest gift in the world. This is not just head knowledge. This has overtaken our hearts. This has overtaken our emotions. We've been given this great gift and we have to share it with the world in which we live. We have to be a blessing in our workplace. We have to be a blessing in our family, not because it's an obligation, because it's the most natural thing for us to do. Really silly example. I get accused of having lots of fads. And about five years ago, one of my best mates, Lockie Gage, who you know, he introduced me to whole leg mayonnaise. Now, who eats whole leg mayonnaise? All right, let me preach to you about whole egg mayonnaise. 
So about five years ago, I had no idea, just like I was in a bit of a rut um, and uh, and I was a, a creamy mayonnaise man. And Lockie Gage, like one day I was at his house and he showed me this whole egg mayonnaise. He's like, man, you don't know what you're missing out on. And I didn't. And all of a sudden I started eating whole egg mayonnaise and it changed my life. Five years, like honest, no, honestly, I don't think I've gone a day without eating whole egg mayonnaise. All right. It's my, fa- I love it. And like, I don't know, when I get something I love, I have to share it with everyone. And so all of a sudden, I start telling everyone about whole leg mayonnaise. I had a guy in my football team who was, I got in an argument in the dressing room one day, because um, I'm telling him about whole leg mayonnaise, and he's telling me, it's horrible, mate, it's no good. The next week, I brought him whole leg mayonnaise, and I'm giving him this gift in the locker room, and he, I forced him to eat it then and there. Um, Amy's brother, I was so convincing with this and I shared it with so many people. Amy's brother cottoned on and he's like, this is good. This is really good. And he explores a bit more adventurous, adventurous than I am. So he started exploring and so he started eating it and I got over one day and he's got Ferrero shares and he's dipping it in the whole egg mayonnaise. I mean, this is what, like, this is what, like, the, this can, like, we're, this is what happens when we're compelled to, to share something, when we're compelled to do something. Um, I had something that I had to share most simple thing in the world. That's not really, it's like the ingredients are just perfect. But like I had to share that. It's just a silly thing in a white jar that like heaven's going to be full of. Um, now we have stupid analogy. We have the gospel. We have the good news. We have peace, complete and utter peace. We have joy. The world in which we live, Julian is so spot on. The world in which we live, and especially in the West, especially in Australia, especially in the hills, is full of people who are isolated and lonely. And we're fools if we think we're not a part of that. The culture we live in is full of people, and we carry this as well, where we are isolated and we are lonely. And God offers, and he's the only source of this happiness, God offers this deep and pure happiness. God offers this deep and pure unity where people come together as a family and we are united by what? We are united by the cross. We are united by the fact that we carry the spirit of God with us. That is what unites us. We are all different. We have different passions. We have different things that we like doing during the week. We have different ways of viewing things. Some of us like the color purple. Some of us think it's the worst color in the world. We're all different. And we all have different ways of viewing the world. And that's beautiful. That's good. But we come together as a family because we've been united by God and what he has done. And the world in which we live, the culture in which we live, the society in which we live is lonely and isolated. And there is so much writing about what that leads to in regards to mental health. There is so much writing about the implications for our young people and old people because we live in cultures that are lonely and isolated. Christ's love compels us to share the good news through word and action, through the smallest of deeds, through the smallest little blessing that you can be at your workplace, through the smallest little word that you can say to your child or to your to your parent. 
Or it might be that you have a really full-on conversation one day with someone, a conversation of blessing. All that it needs is a root of faith. We had um this pumpkin just start growing in our front yard. I noticed it about a month, two months ago, and about two months ago, it I don't know, it was probably a metre wide. I remember looking at it going, we did not plant that. Came from nowhere. Miracle plant. And, um, and this pumpkin just kept growing. And we went to trim it and then the boys started getting really interested in it. So I oh, would we'll just let it go. And I don't know, we didn't spend heaps of time out there and like little did we know that it was just growing. Um, and about two weeks ago, oh, about a week ago now, week ago, I went out there and it was ridiculous. This pumpkin plant had over, completely overtaken our, our whole front yard. Um, the footpath was covered, completely covered with the vines. Literally would be about 10 metres by about three metres, taken over absolutely everything. And I looked at this thing, I'm like, it's time to go. But we'd been waiting because these pumpkins were growing, these two pumpkins. So we we let them grow to, you know, a decent size and then we... um. We, we decided, look, it's time to clean it. So I went out there, took the boys, we picked the two pumpkins out and, um, and they were, they were ecstatic. Uh, we can make pumpkin soup, which is the worst idea ever because pumpkin soup's the worst. Um, but anyway, we got these two pumpkins and so we picked the pumpkins and then we're like, all right, we gotta, we gotta put these, this, um, we gotta put this away. So I start cutting it and I start pulling it out and it's just like, it has spread absolutely everywhere. Um, and I'm pulling it and pulling it and I finally I get to the root. And I was expecting this thing to have like lots of different little root systems, but I find it and I get to the root and there's just this one, like, was that about that deep? Like I just did that. Like it was no, I didn't have to pull hard at all and out it came. Um, and that was the source of this plant that had just absolutely overtaken our yard. Um, if you're a pumpkin and you have planted yourself there, your job is just to spread. You are compelled as a pumpkin, as a plant, to, to spread your vine as far as possible. And that's what it did. And it produced these two pumpkins. Um, one of the things I was thinking about, I was cutting this thing up, is it took one tiny little um, root. One tiny little root. And it just started spreading and doing its thing. And if the pumpkin is the gospel, like I think it's the opposite of the gospel, but for this analogy, if the pumpkin plant is the gospel, like it took one little root and it just spread. And the root was allowing it to spread and be intricate and, and be detailed everywhere it went, but it was producing the fruit that it was meant to produce because it was connected to the source. This little pumpkin plant had really humble beginnings. I couldn't tell you where it came from, probably flew in, I don't know. I can tell you now that we did not water it at all. I can also tell you that our boys pee way too much in the garden and like that is what nurtured this pumpkin plant. Um, this pumpkin plant didn't ask for permission. It just knew it was compelled to do what it was compelled to do and it just spread. It, in its mind, produced this life and it happened because it was rooted really simply in the right stuff. We are a people who are compelled to share the gospel. This is the best news in the world. We are held 
held tightly, compelled, held tightly by Jesus in our relationship with him. And what he wants to do is give us this perspective. He wants to raise us up, create us in as people who are loved and who understand his grace and who take on his heart and then spread his word, spread his affections for people, spread his grace in the world in which we live. This is not about being polite. This is about being kind. This is not about being polite. It's about having a deeper vision for the world in which we live because that is the vision that God has for the world in which we live. I want to share a story for you from a guy named Simo Watts, who a lot of you guys would know. He's a leader for us in the faith community. And one of the things that the gospel does for us is it gets us to do strange things. All of a sudden, we take on God's heart for people and we are moved to do strange things that we would never be moved to do. And I want to share this story that he wrote um, wrote for us at Feast. And um, and if, you, if you're interested in the full story, it's about five pages long. I'm going to read a small excerpt from it. Then jump on on the Facebook page, then there's um, there's the full thing there. And if you're interested, just come and see me if you don't have Facebook and I'll, I'll give it to you because it's really worth a read. But Simo says this, he's a 26-year-old guy. He says, two weeks ago, I saw a man at the shops who I'd seen once before. The first time I saw him was a few months ago. He was at a booth collecting funds for a dog charity. I remember walking past him and for some reason I had compassion on him. Although he was just sitting there, he looked defeated. No one seemed to be stopping to give him money or pay him attention. And so I got some money out and I gave it to him. It was a gift to him rather than the dog charity. Although I love animals too, he says. He seemed grateful and thanked me and we had a quick chat. I left praying for him and as I drove away, I saw him again two weeks ago and I, and again, I saw him sitting the same and the same feeling came over me. I got money out again, gave it to him and was very, and he was very appreciative. Shaking my hand, I left to go get some lunch and whilst eating, I was praying for him and wondering what his story was. I felt there was something else going on for him and after praying, I decided to go and ask him if he wanted a drink from Coles with the intention to see if we could strike up a conversation. I came back with a drink and we started chatting and I asked him if he had dogs himself. This is where he opened up. He explained that he loves dogs as they're often nicer than people and 16 years ago he had a horrible accident while working which left him with a disability. His knee down to his foot was crushed and he can't work as a result. He has been in constant pain and now relies on work, workers' compensation. He's lost properties and his business. He had four dogs, but his wife left him and took them. She's a nurse and couldn't cope without looking after patients, with looking after patients at work and at home. And he's been in and out of court fighting for the ability to work. His partner had just had a miscarriage and his uncle had recently passed away. He now volunteers for the dog charity so he doesn't need to sit at home looking at four walls and because of his love for animals. We ended up talking for, for nearly an hour and I was able to pray for him his situation and for healing over his leg. I invited him to church. I invited him to the men's shed and we exchanged numbers. I don't know what has happened to him since, but at the very least, I felt I was given the opportunity to love him and at that very moment and to give him some company. By the time we parted ways, his demeanor had changed. And if you read Simo's five pages of the article, um, he talks about the fact that this is not his norm. He talks about the fact that like time and time again, he's had these feelings to go and talk to people. He's had these moments where he wants to pray for someone, but then he doesn't act upon it. He talks about the amount of times where fear and not a holy fear, but a worldly fear has stopped him from loving the people around him. Um, 
Here we have a guy, and Simo, I can tell you, is like an absolute legend. But here we have a guy who just did a really simple thing. He allowed the Spirit of God to have the strongest voice in his life, and it looked a little bit weird. It looked like going up to a guy who was um, who was sitting there with a charity box and just getting to know him, asking some questions. And after two encounters, you have this encounter with this man, which is deeply, deeply profound. We are a people who are compelled to do really strange things because we follow a God who is really strange. We are a people who are compelled to do and act um, in ways that seem really weird to the world because we have a God that has a deeper vision for the world than mankind has for the world in which we lived. And the passage goes on to say, we are convinced. Think about that word. We are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We are people who are convicted that the gospel is the most important thing in this world. And he goes on to say, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What a passage. What a verse. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. The overflow of the gospel in our lives is that we start to see people as God sees them. And what we're told here is that God does not see them from a worldly point of view. When we are hidden in Christ, when we are compelled to follow Christ, when we are held by him, we get a greater perspective. We get his perspective. We get his heart. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. We know love is two things. It is a laying down your life for the people around us and it is having a greater vision for your neighbor than you have for yourself. And what greater vision can we have for people in this world than to no longer see them from a worldly point of view? The world constantly makes people smaller. It wants to control. It wants to understand. It wants to be satisfied in things that don't last. But what this verse is implying is that we are then to see people as God sees them. This means that the best thing that we can do, the best vision that we can have for people's lives is that of the gospel, is that of heaven. Because God's desires for people that they that are that they be utterly happy, that we be utterly free, that we be utterly and completely satisfied in him. He knows that when we are satisfied in him above all else, that's how we're happy. That's how we become joyful. That's how we become people who bear fruit. As I finish, I want to remind us that we are people who are purposely created by the King. I want to encourage us that we are then to have an eternal vision for the people around us. Who are we? We are purposed by the King. We are created by Him. He knows us in the most intricate of ways. How should we live? We should be people who have an eternal vision for the people around us because we no longer see anyone from a worldly point of view because that is not how God sees us. And then finally, we are to be people who are rooted in Jesus, that we are to be held close in Jesus because really simply, that's how we become people who are joyful and that's how we become people who overflow the greatest answer that the world needs. When we are held close to him, when we are rooted in him, the way in which his love and grace spreads 
in our lives is something of beauty. And all it takes is for us to be people of faith where we are connected to who he is, where we are in relationship with him, where we are being excited by him through the hardships and through the best times in our lives because we know that his glory is above everything else in this life and his glory is what satisfies us. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of grace. Father, we want to thank you that you're a God that has just so much mercy on us. Now, Father, you're not a God that just puts this weight on us. You are the, you're a God that lifts that weight off us. Father, I want to thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. I want to thank you that you have a deeper vision for our lives than we could possibly have for our own. I want to thank you that you You showed us what love is. And Father, in a world that is just desperately seeking love, I want to thank you that you just showed us the way so incredibly clearly. So Father, I want to pray over us as a family. I want to pray that we would be a people who just are connected to you. I want to pray that we would be people who are completely hidden in you. I want to be pray that I want to pray that we would be people who are then compelled compelled to spread your love and your good news in the world in which we live. Father, I want to pray that you would give us deep vision for our neighbours, for people who we do not know. I want to pray that you would give us a deep sense of, um, I'll pray that you would give us a really deep sense of being compelled for the lost, for those who need justice in this world, for those who are marginalised, for those who are poor, for those who are needy. Father, I want to pray that you would open our eyes to this world in which we live, to the people in this world. And Father, give us your eyes, give us your heart. Father, help us to be a people who do strange things. Help us to be a people who do foolish things in the eyes of the world because we are so focused, we are so convinced, we're so convicted that your way is just so much better. So as we go into this week, Father, help us to be a light in the darkness. Help us to be a people who just spread your good news through word and action and help us to love the world in which we live. In your name, amen.